Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. All right, my friends, welcome back to the Avenue History Podcast. This episode is entitled Desmond Ford, Part 1. Now, last time we talked about how 1980 was a pivotal year in the making of the modern Seventh-day Adventist Church, and by 1980, I mean 1980-ish. Specifically, we talked about the 1980 General Conference session and the official adoption of 27 Fundamental Beliefs. So here we are, the final series of episodes of the Adventist History Podcast. I have spent so many hours studying Desmond Ford in preparation for this. I have done interviews with people last summer in preparation for this. So let me tell you, confidently, with conviction, that I still feel like I have a long way to go before I am ready to do this. But do this, I shall. Oh, man. If I took all of the time that I felt I needed in order to write these episodes, it would probably never get written. That's why we have deadlines, right? I mean, that's that's how this whole podcast got started. I wanted to learn having this history. Decided to do a podcast because I would be forced to come up with something each and every month. So why complain about it now, huh? Ten years later, why complain about that now? I am excited. I am terrified. And I, I, I feel all sorts of feelings. I know we're not at the end yet, but the idea that this is the last series of episodes... It, it, I am I'm excited to not have to do this routine that I have done for 10 years unfailingly. Uh, but I'm also kind of sad. I'm, I'm going to miss it. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss our time together going through this stuff. Now, of course, as I've said before, doesn't mean I'm done with Avenus history. I'll start making content for the YouTube channel. And, and I'm excited about that. But the podcast, that's that's been you and me. This whole time. And going to YouTube, it offers some advantages, being able to show pictures and videos and things like that. But it's less intimate. It's less one-on-one, -on -one, which is how a podcast feels. And it's more broadcasting. And so it'll, it'll, it'll change a little bit, but we'll still have fun. Anyways, let's get started with, uh, well, with what the genie said in Aladdin. A few lame provisos, a couple of quid pro quos, and so forth. All right. First up, this is important. Put on your listening ears. I am not going to tell you whether I think Desmond Ford was right or wrong. So if you're listening to this episode, hope, hoping I'm going to join Team Ford or I'm going to join Team, I don't know, whatever the other side of that is, the other side of it, uh, you're going to be disappointed. So I'm just letting you know now, if you're hoping I'm going to stir something up, if I'm going to carry the torch in a new generation, I'm not, I'm not here to do that. Second, these episodes, like all of my episodes, are works in progress. I may learn something further down the road. In fact, I'm going to count on it. 
that makes me think, huh, I should have fixed that in this episode, or I should have added that, or I should have subtracted something. Okay, these episodes are my first draft, not my final word. Third, I want to remind you that this is a podcast on Avenus history, not on Avenus theology. Of course, we deal with some theology in order to understand what's going on, but yeah, we could do a whole series on Desmond Ford's theology. It would it would take some time. So this is not on theology, this is on history. Okay. With these disclaimers in mind, we need to tackle one teensy weensy question before we begin. That is this. Why? Why am I doing this series on Desmond Ford? Because there's there's got to be somebody out there. I know people have asked me about it already. But there's somebody listening right now saying, why, Matthew? Why mess with the hornet's nest? I don't know if it's still a hornet's nest, you know. But, but why, why jump into this? Why not just end the podcast with the 1980 General Conference session and let's all sing a hymn and go home? Why mess with what has probably been the most controversial saga in Adventist history, at least since 1888. Well, I'm glad you asked that question through my voice. I can assure you that it's not because I have an axe to grind on this issue. I was not alive for Glacier View, for the heyday of Ford's influence, and truly, truly, I don't care I care about theology. I I care about the truth. I care about the gospel. I care about people. But I don't care about relitigating the past. I don't care about trying to resurrect dead theological controversies. It's kind of like, uh, well, it's kind of like growing up just after World War II, or maybe just after 9-11, and hearing adults talk about how impactful those events had been, but you don't feel the same emotional connection to those events. I don't feel the emotions about Glacier View, which many of the people who lived through it do. And, and that's okay, right? I'm aghast at some of the young people in my church who feel no emotional connection to 9-11. You know, I remember where I was. Maybe you remember where you were. How can they not remember where they were? You know, how was that not as significant for them as it was for me? It's, 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 ah, how can that be? Well, it's the same thing with Glacier View, right? When I became a Seventh-day Adventist as a teenager, I remember hearing people say that Ford had started something and that he was some kind of heretic. I knew about the Daniel and Revelation Committee and that they had released a series of books, which I dutifully bought and leafed through, but I never really read them. I still have never really read them. Should probably get on that. Anyways, I knew Ford had subsequently started a ministry, Good News Unlimited. But again, I didn't really pay attention. These were all artifacts from an earlier age. My generation had their own topics to study, their own wars to fight, so to speak. So I'm not doing any of this out of uh, 
I, I guess a desire to fight that fight again. I don't, I don't care to do that. Again, still doesn't really answer the question, so why do them? Why do the episodes on Fort? Because I do think it's time we talk about him. It's time because after more than 40 years, we should be able to have some perspective on his life and work. It's time because, well, while it's been 40 years, there are still a number of people who lived through it and can give us some insight. We don't want to wait until everyone who ever knew him is gone before we start asking historical questions. But we also don't want to try to ask those questions in the aftermath of Glacier View, when tempers are still hot, when feelings are still hurt, because you're not going to get perspective there either, right? In other words, I think we're in something of a sweet spot. And finally, it's time because we have generations now who have grown up in a post-Glacier View era who, like me, have heard their parents or grandparents talking about this or maybe have grown up in an Adventist context or converted to an Adventist context who have never heard of Desmond Ford. It's such a non-issue. It's in the distant past. And I think, I think in that case, they should hear about Desmond Ford. I think they should be familiar with his story and his role in Adventist history. And for those like me who converted to Seventh-day Adventism and, and heard these negative things about Ford at various parts of my, uh, my, when I was younger, I want to know what really happened. I want to know what really happened. Because I don't think you can fully understand the modern Seventh-day Adventist church, at least the English-speaking parts of the church, without understanding Desmond Ford. And that is what season two of this podcast has been about. How did the Seventh-day Adventist Church get to where it is today? And I don't think you can answer that question, not, not fully, without understanding Desmond Ford. So, we're going to talk about Desmond Ford. To the extent Adventists have even heard of Ford, and I don't take it for granted anymore. I would I would suggest that most young Adventists never have heard of Desmond Ford. Well, anyways, to the extent that Adventists have heard of Ford, they've probably heard that he had some controversial ideas about the sanctuary, that this culminated in a meeting at Glacier View Ranch, an Adventist camp in Colorado, and, you know, maybe a couple details besides that. So, I want to use this first episode to introduce you to Desmond Ford. Because, first and foremost, he was a human being. And he has a story that doesn't begin and end at Glacier View. I've said it when we've covered controversies in Adventist history on this podcast, that people are more than their controversies. They're more than their theological ideas. They're more than the kerfuffle that they were a part of. And I, I think it's important to understand Ford's whole life story. Now, this is not, we're not doing biography here, but there's a lot of biography involved. So let's begin at his beginning. Ford was born February 2nd, 1929, in Townsville, 
which is in Queensland, Australia, to a nominally Anglican home. His family must have found the fountain of youth there because Des lived to be 90. Both his mother and father were just shy of 90. His grandmother lived to be 100. There's something in those genes, guys. Ford's father had pushed him to read as if, you know, Des needed much pushing. This is one of the hallmarks of his life. The guy was well-read and loved reading, loved encountering other ideas. Now, Milton Hook, who wrote a biography of Ford that I don't think ever contains a negative thing about Ford, uh, nevertheless noted that, quote, rarely was a book out of his hands, end quote. Hook tells us that children back then didn't wear shoes until they were teenagers in that part of Australia. So we can imagine Ford as he crossed between, as a, as a cross between Bell from Beauty and the Beast and Tom Sawyer, right? He's a, he's a bookworm, but also something of a, of a country nomad as he's, as he's, his dirty feet are walking all across town. Now in the 1930s, Townsville had the works, various ice and coke storage works, the gas works, Leon's Motor Works, I guess, yeah, they had all the works. In 1938, Ford entered an essay contest, received an honorable mention in the local newspaper. The same year, he attended a ball, apparently, and came dressed like a rooster. And if you're wondering, I checked, have not found a picture of that. I would dearly love to find a picture of that. Des's father had a cousin who was an Adventist, and so... Adventism's first inroads into Dez's family was through his mother, who became interested in cooking healthier food. She eventually took Dez to attend an Adventist camp meeting down the coast in Bowen. Dez apparently found it boring, but he did enjoy eating granola. Oh gosh, you know he's going to make a good Adventist already. An Adventist leader noticed Dez reading, predictably, and gave him a Bible. Hey, you want to read something? Here's a Bible, which Dez also eagerly read. Hook tells us that Des is mom and dad, or is it mum and dad? I don't know. Everything I know about Australia is from Bluey. Uh, anyways, Hook says that Des's parents divorced. Dang it, I just spoiled the series finale of Bluey. My bad. Anyways, uh, where were we again? Oh yeah, Des seems to have become disconnected from his father after the divorce. He was only nine when it happened, and his father moved south to Canberra. Des would only reconnect with his dad about 30 years later. So he and his brother were living with their mom. And Des's mom started receiving visits from an Adventist leader and his wife. And these became Bible studies. And then, I guess, something more? Milton Hook, again, tells us that Des's mom and this church leader had some kind of relationship which resulted in the leader quitting the ministry and divorcing his wife. And he started a dry cleaning business in Sydney. And Des's mom moved the kids there to work for him at this dry cleaning business in Sydney. But despite his earnest entreaties, she refused to marry him. And despite the long contact with Adventists, the Fords weren't Adventists yet. They still attended the Anglican church, but remained connected to various Adventists in their life. One of them gave Des some books by George McCready Price to help counteract what Des was learning about evolution in high school. But Des had to drop out of high school, take up a job 
at a local newspaper in order to earn some money for the family. And despite being well-suited for the work, he hated the environment. He hated that people sweared all the time around the office. In the mid-1930s, Adventists began pushing into the airwaves in Australia with something called Advent Radio Church. Now, it was usually a few hymns, a prayer, a scripture reading, special music, and a 15-minute sermon. Basically, a maybe slightly shorter Adventist worship service. It aired on Sunday afternoons and quickly found an audience. Now, Lawrence Naden was appointed pastor of this Church of the Air, which sounds just as wild as hiring someone to pastor an internet church these days. Seriously, though, Advent Radio Church? Someone needs to resurrect that. I mean, skip the radio part. Just just broadcast it on a, you know, make it a podcast or put it on YouTube or something like that. It's a cool name. It aged really, really well 90 years later. Anyways, Desmond heard one of these broadcasts in the early 1940s and followed the instructions to receive a Bible study course by John Lewis Schuler, who was an established Adventist evangelist who had, uh, well, he was, I guess, notable for having preached his first sermon in a coal mine 150 feet underground. Yes, he would eat his lunch. He worked there. He would eat his lunch fast and first, and then while everyone else had uh, stopped to go eat their lunch, he would uh, he'd preach to them. Now, Des was not impressed by the proof-texting method that these Bible studies contained, but by now he was firmly in the Adventist orbit. In his conversations with Adventist ministers, including Lawrence Naden, Des fired his toughest questions at them. He argued with one about the Sabbath and asked another, why isn't the name of God in the book of Esther? I mean, these are some, these are some good questions. Questions that you don't usually expect a teenager to be asking. Oh, and then he had another one. When exactly was the book of Daniel written? Was it an early date to Daniel, a late date to Daniel, so forth? Now, Des's mother turned cold on Adventism all of a sudden, but her former interest, that, that church leader who wanted to marry her, continued to look after Des. In fact, he gave him some money to go buy some theological books. These were not Adventist books, mind you. Now, Des, his mother countered by buying a book by E.B. Jones, that former Adventist who had turned against the church and whose writings had reached Walter Martin and Donald Barnhouse and colored them against Adventists. But Des was now determined to join, and he was baptized September 21, 1946. Long before that, he had done battle. I mean, by long before that, I mean earlier that year, in the spring of 1946, he had done battle in a magazine advocating for creation over evolution. The guy was not even an Adventist yet, right? Still, I guess officially, a, a on-again, off-again Anglican. And here he is arguing for creation in a, in a magazine. As a, as a what? As a 16-year-old? Interestingly enough, while Ford advocated for God's creation, his special creation over evolution, he wasn't fully convinced that the earth was made in six 24-hour periods. Responding to a critic, Ford said he wasn't there at creation, you know, so how can I say for sure how it was created? But that, the Bible is, in Ford's words, probably correct in saying that the world was created in six 24-hour periods. A few months after that, still a month before his baptism, Ford was on much less dangerous ground when his first article appeared for the Australasian record. Des Ford, the writer, 
was on his way even before Des Ford, the church member. His new church family also introduced him to C.S. Lewis and, curiously, to W.W. Fletcher, an Aussie Adventist who had been defrocked over his views of the sanctuary doctrine. Dun, dun, dun. Fletcher had been called to Washington, D.C. He had been given six months of paid leave to write out his views in preparation for a hearing with church leaders. In case you're wondering, yeah, that's a bit of foreshadowing. Des at last settled on attending Avondale. Then it was called Australasian Missionary College. His mother put up a fight, and his brother actually threatened to drive off a cliff in protest, but Des got his way. He wanted to enter the Adventist ministry. The uncertainty of what to do with his life was over. He was going to become an Adventist. He was going to join the Adventist ministry. Now, it's worth pausing at this point in the story to reflect on what Des is leaving behind as he joins the Adventist church and, and specifically the Adventist ministry. His dad had uh, basically abandoned the family. His mother and brother were both opposed to this path. And while his mother relented and begrudgingly accepted that Des would go to Avondale, Des had to be smuggled aboard a train to avoid his brother's wrath. Des had gone all in on Adventism. The bridges behind him were on fire. And it wasn't an easy choice to make. But it was the only place, I, I think, where Des had a future. He knew he didn't want to work at the newspaper and make a career out of that. His family was so broke, he hadn't been able to finish high school, though I think he got basically what we have in the States here as a GED, right? He just uh, completed it by passing some kind of test. And while he was a gifted young man, what were his other options, right? If you can't afford to go to high school, how are you going to afford to go to college? Whereas the Adventist Church offered college, and perhaps more than mere undergraduate work, as well as a huge network of people who truly valued his gifts. Look, Adventists are a pretty evangelistic bunch, and they dearly want more people to join their churches. But people really, really wanted Des to join. That church leader who had given Des money for theology books also helped pay for his first year at Avondale. And I remember people wanted me to become an Adventist back in the day, but no one offered to pay for a year at college for me. That would have been fantastic. At Avondale, one of Des's professors, William Murdoch, considered him a, quote, brilliant student and a very good speaker, end quote. Everyone saw Des's immense potential in the ministry. When Des was about to graduate, he was deep in debt, right? Because uh, that patron had only covered his first year. But Murdoch intervened and wiped the debt away by getting Des to pledge to work for the church for a few years. In case anyone from my conference is listening, I too would pledge to be an indentured servant for a few years if you'll pay off my school loans. Thank you for listening. Even Des's classmates and his future opponents, such as Colin and Russell Standish, could see that Des was special. The Standish twins would later write, quote, Without dispute, the most able student of the college in 1950 was Desmond Ford. Not only did Des have an outstanding academic record, but he was also a highly spiritual and excellent speaker. There was no question in our minds that there was a prince of the church in blossom. It was impossible to dislike him, end quote. Look, I loathe when people want to play armchair psychologist, but here I am about to play armchair psychologist. 
I'm just struck by something that Luke Ford, Des's son, wrote maybe 10 years ago. Luke says that when his mother was pregnant with him, she declared this one would do something special for the Lord. And when he was older, Luke described his, quote, yearning for significance, for distinguishing myself from others, end quote. Could it be that this sense of destiny, this sense of specialness, this need to stand out, was something Luke inherited from his dad? Luke seems to think so. There's no doubt that Des was special. He was extraordinary. He seemed to know it. His peers knew it. His professors knew it. He was the chosen one who would bring balance to the force. And that definitely means things will turn out well. Right, George Lucas? Right? Right? And if I could just play armchair psychologist just, just for 10 more seconds. I think we see when some people come from difficult backgrounds, broken homes, um, or you know, drug use, or whatever it may be, sometimes they are the most zealous. They just shoot off like rockets when they join a church because they're they're propelled, they're motivated, right? You look at you look at Saint Paul; he's persecuting Christians, and then he flips that around, and the same zeal he used to persecute Christians, he 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 dives headlong into promoting. Christianity. So all I'm saying is Des, Des fits the type. He was not just a good speaker, not just a spiritual young man, not just possessing the intellectual capacity for study, but he was motivated to do all of those things. He was motivated to, to make something of his life, considering that his environment growing up was not, didn't look like it was leading anywhere. All right, getting off the armchair now. Des would be the first one to admit that his early days as, as an Adventist were spent in a legalistic fog. You know, you join the conversation when you join the church. And the conversation, you know, you, you talk about the things people are talking about around you, right? And uh, Des, but he, he, he did show flashes of transcending that. He put notices. This is the coolest thing in the world. He would routinely put notices in the Australasian record looking for certain books. You know, just put a little classified in there. Hey, it's Des Ford. I'm at such and such an address. If you're willing to sell this book, that book, or the other book, let me know. I'd love to have it. And, uh, you know, one time he, in, I think it was 1950, he put a notice in. He was looking for the fundamentals from which, you know, we eventually got the name fundamentalist. But some of Des's professors were doing their best to raise questions, to challenge him, to push back on some of this. And uh, one of the issues in which they pushed back was about some of the traditional Adventist interpretations of Armageddon. Was it a literal battle? Was it a spiritual battle? Was it a hybrid? You know, there was a, a, a physical battle, or there will be a physical battle, that, that speaks to a larger spiritual battle. This is something Adventists have talked about. I understand. Today... This is uh, maybe not something that gets talked about as much in the Adventist church. We are decidedly, oh boy, how do I put this? Uh, less theologically curious about apocalyptic things as, as uh, Adventists have in the past. Okay, 
Uh, obviously, it's not true for every single Adventist, but you, you get the point. Like, we're not having a lot of articles about the Battle of Armageddon uh, like we used to and things like that. Anyways, for the, for the past 20 years before Des, Adventist interpreters showed some willingness to reconfigure their understanding of the last three chapters of Daniel as well as the Battle of Armageddon. And this was in part because of World War I. They had expected certain things. We called it the Eastern Question. They expected certain things to happen in, in the Middle East as a result of World War I, fulfillments of Bible prophecy that didn't happen. And so that sent some folks back to the drawing board. Maybe we got this wrong, and how can we reinterpret this? And Anyways, that happened again after World War II. And this began his studies at Avondale then, like right in the middle of this. Louis Weir's views had rendered him, that is Weir, persona non grata. Arthur Patrick, an Aussie historian who lived through those days, observed that, quote, no astute theology student would be seen reading Weir's books at the Australasian Missionary College during the 1950s, end quote. Weir was dismissed from the ministry. His books considered poison there, and unfortunately, he never lived to see that many of his views that were considered so, I guess, poisonous were adopted uh, and his works were used as textbooks in the seminary in the 1970s. Oops. Back at the 1919 Bible Conference, a Brit who spent some time down under openly surmised that Antiochus Epiphanes might be one fulfillment of Daniel 11. This was by no means a unique feature of Aussie Adventism, but the front lines of this turmoil, of this period of transition, of, of renegotiating some of these interpretations, ran straight through Australia. One of Des's classmates was a big fan of Lewis Weir and urged Des to read some of Weir's writings. But, you know, don't be obvious about it. Des did began a correspondence with Lewis Weir. Des was among those students pushing for new interpretations, or at least trying to better understand the issues involved. And some of this worried some parents at Avondale who complained. Now, Des graduated in 1950 and had no problem finding a call. At first, it was to New Zealand, but his girlfriend, a classmate he had named Gwen Booth, didn't want to go to New Zealand because she apparently hated Lord of the Rings. Wait, wait, hold on. I'm told those movies were not even out yet. I got my notes mixed up. My bad. Gwen didn't want to go there because she didn't like sheep. What? Nope, that's not it. All right, sorry, wrong again. Okay, whatever. She liked Des, didn't want Des to move so far away, okay? Anyway, she told all of this to the president of the North New South Wales Conference, and he was more than happy to hire Des and rescue him from having to go to Australia. Hold on. North New South Wales. Let me get out my map here. Hold on. I think it's right next to the West East South North Conference. Worse, I'm told that there are actually no whales in North New South Wales. Very troubling business this is. Come on, Australia, let's get it together. Be more like America, where all of our <laughs> all of our measurements and place names make perfect sense. <clears throat> Anyways, in 1950, Des had published ten articles in twelve months, including a series he began on each book of the Bible. He never finished that series, to my knowledge. Uh but he started off Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Come on, you know it with me. Say it with me. All right, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. 
he, he just started an article on each of these books. Like, what are each of these books trying to say? What's the big idea in these books? He wasn't given the uh, the so-called big articles, right? The the articles that chronicled world events in light of prophecy or whatever. But he wrote on the significance of Jesus Christ and the need to see the gospel even in the Old Testament. That was his focus. Now, his writing pace slowed down in 1951 when he was attached to the evangelistic campaign that uh, that George Burnside was operating. How do I explain George Burnside? Burnside is everything you think of when you think of a good, old-fashioned Adventist evangelist. He knew the Adventist message. He believed the Adventist message with the utmost conviction. He had the science of soul winning down. By the time he retired, he had brought more people to the church, that is, baptized them, brought them in the membership, than very likely than anyone else in the South Pacific Division. It was in the thousands. But, on the other side of that, he was as open-minded and as diplomatic as a honey badger. The North New South Wales Conference President was, of course, friendly to Ford, but surely he could have seen that Ford and old Honey Badger were going to clash. But still, anyone entering ministry, I mean, back then, you needed to have good, hard experience on the front lines doing evangelism in the field before you could possibly be placed in positions of responsibility, such as pastoring a church. There needed to be a serious internship. These days, and that still happens, by the way, you have to do a field school if you're going to the seminary, if you're getting your MDiv, which means you have to be a part of an evangelistic series happening somewhere. And, uh, hey, when I went to Southern Avenue University, I had to do a field school there, too. Oh, the stories that could be told. Anyways, this had been the case for a long time. Ellen White had sometimes seen evangelistic experience as the cure for, how shall we say it, institutionalized minds who were cooped up in the publishing houses and college offices and places like that. Sometimes she would say, you all need to go out and do some evangelism. You've been stuck inside for too long. Well, anyways, despite the wind knocking the tent over twice in Newcastle, where the, where the campaign was taking place, Burnside managed to baptize another 150 people, just like that. Now, this was no, this was no loner with a tent. He brought an army with him. Burnside brought an army with him. There was a choir, first of all, with a choir director. There were nursing classes. There were cooking schools. There was constant home visitation and Bible studies. There was, uh, I would say, a capable PR campaign waging in the newspapers. And on that matter, uh, by the way, the, the, the whole campaign ranged. It was not a six-week thing. It was not an eight-week thing. It went from April until November, seven months, a feature, not a bug, I think, of the Newcastle campaign was controversy. Local clergy were particularly incensed at a statement, I will say that Burnside supposedly said, and the statement was that no man could stand before him for five minutes on the teachings of the Bible. You can understand why local clergy were upset by that. 
It's kind of like, uh, I guess, like challenging your manhood or whatever. <laughs> now, I say that he supposedly said that because he claims that his statement was heard out of context. He he claims that what he really said was, um, I'll just paraphrase for you, that in the book of Galatians, the way he's explained the law there, no one has ever stood before him for five minutes uh, before, I guess, conceding that he was right in the way that he explained Galatians. Is that a whole lot better? No, but I mean, it is, you know, not arrogant. <laughs> it could, if it's true, then it's just a description of fact, right, of, of his experience. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, Burnside said I had hundreds of people who heard me say what I said. Some of the local clergy said, uh, you know, I have a few people and I who say that they heard things the way that I said things or the way that I heard things. The thing is, the controversy did not die down, perhaps in part, and this is just pure conjecture, <laughs> pure suspicion. It didn't die down, perhaps in part because Burnside came across as someone who might make such a comment. The Encyclopedia article on Burnside, okay, this is not all on Milton Hook here explaining this. This is not all on, on, you know, Desmond Ford's recollections of this. The encyclopedia article at the uh, ESDA, the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, the one on Burnside tells us, quote, always controversial in the wider community. There was never any doubt that Burnside did not mind offending people if for no other reason than that community controversy built attendance at his crusades. End quote. So yeah, he and Des are going to get along great. One day when Burnside was training the team, that was also a part of this, you know, and that's a part of field school today as well, is, uh, you know, the education of local members, local pastors, and, uh, you know, if there's any ministerial students or whatever, future pastors who are there, that's part of it too. This is a, this is a, a class. You meet with the evangelist and he explains why he's doing what he's doing, takes questions, etc. And so during one of those periods, the topic of Armageddon came up. It was a hot topic in the day. And undoubtedly, somebody asked Burnside what he thought about it, or maybe Burnside just wanted to offer what he thought about it. Either way, there's Des raising his hand and asking some challenging questions. Why do we, like, like this, why do we interpret Armageddon as a literal place when other places in Revelation, like Babylon and Laodicea, are interpreted symbolically. Burnside was apparently irritated. He told Des, you've got a big head. And I don't, I don't think that was a, uh, a physical description. He's saying that Des is arrogant. A little too uppity for uh, challenging the evangelist. Well, after Des and Burnside parted ways after the campaign was over, Burnside, it seems, harbored a sneaking suspicion that Avondale was uh, maybe responsible for Des Ford and some of these other, these other young ministers coming out and, uh, and challenging the status quo. More on that later. In 1952, Des was sent to work further up the coast, uh, further up from Sydney, that is, further up from Newcastle in Coffs Harbor. And uh, that is harbor spelled with a U for reasons unknown to all but God. A minister there apparently told Des 
They'll never ordain you. You're too heretical. And that, uh, that was the least of Dez's problems. Because one day that year, as Dez drove down a winding road through the hills in his Chevrolet to visit a church member, he lost control. And uh, apparently it was wet, and there was a little, the, the road was uneven, and the car just slipped off the road. Plunged 60 feet down into a gully. The car flipped over four times on its way down the embankment. And Dez, being Dez, just brushed himself off and walked to the house that he had planned on visiting, gave his Bible study, and afterwards they sorted out the car issue. That could have been the end of Desmond Ford. That could have been the end of this whole saga. But thankfully it wasn't. Meanwhile, Dez's relationship with Gwen had progressed. They got married on December 17th, 1952. So, Mazel Tov. Milton Hook tells us that, well, Dez and Gwen followed Ellen White's counsels about, you know, let's not be too fancy, let's not spend too much. He nevertheless bought her a wedding ring, a stricture which Hook tells us that many Aussie Adventists ignored. They were married in a chapel on the campus of Avondale with William Murdoch, Dez's professor, officiating in the service. Now, being married meant that Des could finally pastor a church without adult supervision, because in the Adventist church, presumably, the preacher's wife was now his adult supervision. Contrary to what Des was told, he was ordained. And after learning that a local Baptist preacher intended to speak on the topic of why I am not a Seventh-day Adventist, arrangements were made for some Adventist young people to surreptitiously record that Baptist sermon. They were going to attend and record it. And then with the recording and the transcript, they brought it back to Des, and Des preached on why I am a Seventh-day Adventist, and of course advertised it and all that kind of stuff, and made capital out of it. Ford also debated a Church of Christ minister, the one who had principally been offended by Burnside's comments back in the day, they debated the question of whether Christians should keep Sabbath or Sunday. Ford seems to have surprised the minister by offering arguments for the Sabbath that the minister had never encountered before from Adventists. And the Adventists said Ford won, and the Church of Christ members said that their guy had won, though Ford apparently later baptized some of the Church of Christ members. A recording and transcript of that debate also made the rounds, because you don't you know, being a pastor or being an evangelist in that day, you don't, you look for these opportunities, right? You you look for creative opportunities to, to I guess, to, to get a leg up. And so sometimes that's a debate, but don't just have a debate, you know, you got to publicize it. Even even Burnside was, was passing out pages of that debate uh, that he appreciated Ford's answers on and, and uh, was, was wanting to, you wanted to pass it around as much as possible, right? Well, a telegram after the bait, a telegram reached church headquarters that read very simply, Ford slew the dragon. And I love the terse reply that came back. Congratulations slaying dragon when funeral. But there were bigger things going on in Australian Adventism, I should say Australian and New Zealand Adventism, than debates with local ministers, right? That was all just kind of part of the ministry. The Brinsmead family, on the other hand, was clashing with their conference president in Queensland, Robert 
grave. Now, the two families represented two different streams in the church. Grave was was eventually transferred to Northern New Zealand Conference, which really did nothing to quench the fire because the Brinsmeads had supporters everywhere, and the same thing just took place over there. And I've, I've talked about the Robert Grave affair a bit in the episode The World and Worldliness, so I'm not going to recap the whole thing here. Arthur Patrick tells a story from those days that I think gives us a good feel for what it was like to live through them, as best as we're going to be able to, to tell. As a pastor at that time, he had wanted to baptize a young man whom Robert Grave and his followers had disfellowshipped for being a Brinsmead supporter. Now Patrick wanted to look past that. Apparently he didn't want to get into the Grave versus Brinsmead thing. He just saw a gentleman, a young man who believed Adventist things and wasn't an Adventist, so why not make him an Adventist again? Well, his church was not a fan. They instantly suspected that their pastor, Arthur Patrick, was a closet Brinsmeadite, when the conference executive committee involved themselves in it. They insisted that if Arthur Patrick was a good Seventh-day Adventist minister, he should be able to say six words, or else they couldn't guarantee that he would continue in the ministry. Hint taken. What were those six words, you're wondering? <laughs> I kid you not. These were the six words. Robert Brinsmead is of the devil. Say those six words, carry on. Arthur Patrick refused, but he requested a leave of absence to prepare a paper containing his views. Now, that's usually not a good sign, right? But thankfully, Arthur Patrick was brought back into the ministry without having to say those words. Des would naturally, you would imagine, feel a closer affinity to Bob Grave than to Bob Brinsmead. Grave didn't believe there was a literal sanctuary building in heaven. Unlike most Adventists, it was kind of a, a, a passphrase in those days that among the, I guess, reform-minded Adventists, that there was no physical sanctuary structure in heaven. It's not about the two rooms in the sanctuary, it's about the two phases of Christ's ministry in heaven. That's a distinction they would make, right? So if you wanted to know which group you belong to, that was a, a shibboleth that you could, uh, that you could uh, decide or you could demonstrate what side you're on by answering that question in that way. Grave also believed that Jesus had a sinless, not sinful nature. Grave was upset that many Adventists treated Ellen White as the Bible. And so in his discussions with them, he would bring Bible verses and then he would say they would just come back with Ellen White quotes he also believed that Christians are forgiven the moment they repent and come to Jesus, while his opponents apparently claim that a record of our sins remains until the investigative judgment, so on and so forth. I'm not going to get into all of that. At this point, though, Des agreed with some of Graves' views, and, you know, some of them were also shared by the faculty at Avondale and other church leaders in America. They were not all anathema to all Adventists, but... Uh, Graves' problem, Graves' problem was that he was just too impatient and injudicious. I'm not even going to comment on the theology, just the way he handled it. He knew questions and doctrine was coming. 
had been corresponding with Roy Ellen Anderson in America and knew that some of his views were shared by Anderson and others, and he felt, ah, when QOD comes out, it's going to vindicate me, it's going to show my understanding of Adventism is the future, and I've got to, you know, he, he just got impatient with the other Aussie Adventists who didn't see things his way, specifically his division president. Well, he copied some of Roy Anderson's letters, letters that were not supposed to be copied, spread them around as proof that he was only getting ahead of the curve, I guess. He was only an early adopter of where Adventism was going. And he began talking as if, you know, I'm only representing the future here. Trying to process all of this, Des wrote to one of his old professors about the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14, which Adventist taught had terminated in 1844 when, you know, the Millerite movement thought Jesus was going to be coming back again. Des declared, quote, The great landmark for this movement is 1844. If this date be false, I believe we have no excuse for our existence. End quote. But Des did agree with Grave that Ellen White was, in Ford's words, quote, the excuse to be slothful in Bible study, end quote. That is, too many Adventists, Des felt, just read Ellen White instead of reading their Bibles because Ellen White is easier to understand than some of these passages in the Bible. The professor that Ford was writing to responded to Des, and the two were in agreement on another issue. No one will ever get the Adventist sanctuary message out of the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 9. The professor added another bombshell. Quote, there can be no doubt whatever that Sister White is unscriptural in many of her views. I could point to numerous errors in her writing and to interpretations of texts which are contradictory to sound exegesis. End quote. Then he added a third bombshell. Quote, honestly, doesn't the view of an investigative judgment going on since 1844 seem more questionable as the years lengthen? End quote. When Des entered the Adventist Church, it was with the support and encouragement of those administrators, professors, and open-minded members who encouraged him to keep studying. He naturally gravitated towards those types at Avondale, and his early ministry reflected a somewhat atypical Adventist approach to Adventist doctrines. When he debated that Church of Christ minister, he approached it the Des Ford way, not the typical Adventist way. He was well-read in books outside of Adventism, so when he came to make arguments about the Sabbath, he could draw on more than what many Adventist evangelists and pastors were able to draw from, you know, the quotes he found and the angles he took and so forth. Des had always been eager to read beyond Adventist authors and always willing to say when Adventist arguments didn't measure up. I mean, this was just common sense. If I read something an Adventist wrote, I don't think it's exegetically sound. I don't think it's logical. I don't think it's a good argument for any reason. I'm going to say so, right? There's no sense of like, well, I should just shut up because he's a good Adventist and people believe it. So, you know, let's go along with it. But Des wasn't an innovator. Heppenstall, Kranz, Murdoch, Lewis Weir, all have been discussing their different interpretations of things. And they're not all agreed with each other in all of these points, right? Some of these people who are, who are discussing these different interpretations some were kicked out of the ministry, like Bob Grave. Others were celebrated, like Ted Heppenstall. I wonder which way Des would go. 
does put his finger on, I mean, they're on legitimate questions, right? Like, why can't we ask questions about whether Armageddon is literal or symbolic? Personally, I believe it's fair. It's fair to say we believe this for a long time. Is this still true? Can we ask this question? He put his finger on legitimate questions. Finding the answers. That was the hard part. But Des Ford went from a broken home and poverty to, well, finding a church family and slightly less poverty. And that's progress, right? I will see you in the next episode when Des Ford meets Robert Brinsmead and finally finds a ship to take him to America to continue his education. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.